0: Genesis chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father and their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They also took their livestock and their goods which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Sheol, the son of the Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zira. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamuel. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, Jalil, the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padanaram, together with his daughter Dinah, altogether his sons and daughters numbered thirty-three. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggi, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sira their sister. The sons of Bariah, Heber and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and all these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Baker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Huppim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, were born to Jacob, fourteen persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Natali, Jezeel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilim. These are the sons of Bilhah whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob, who came into Egypt, whose own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. The sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two, and all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show him the way before him in Goshen, and he came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face, and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come to the la- from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. From among his brothers he took five and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, "How many are the days or how many are the years of your life?" And Jacob said to Pharaoh The days of my sojourning are 130 years few and evil have been the days of the years of my life and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land in the land of Ramses and Pharaoh had as Pharaoh had commanded Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. When the year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's and there is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and the harvest that you and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it as a statute concerning the land of Egypt as it stands to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth, and that the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. They gained possessions in it. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were one hundred and forty-seven years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favour in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. And let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, Lord, we understand that this is not primarily about Any individual or even any nation but this is about your dealings with your people and so we pray that as we approach this passage of Scripture that you would help us to see more clearly who you are and how you relate to your people for all time through Jesus Christ in whose name we pray amen well I'm very very thankful to be back at home from our missions trip home safe and sound, delivered to you and to our families, our church family. On our trip, we traveled over three continents from above the Arctic Circle to the southern tip of Africa, 40,512 kilometers, a distance longer than the circumference of the earth. We traveled through two police states, one that was on high alert because of a contested election. We traveled through Muslim territory, past tense border crossings and on countless police checks where bribes are the order of the day. We couldn't speak the language. Disease is rampant. Fully one-third of Mozambique is infected with HIV AIDS. We traveled through a cyclone-affected region where there have been recent outbreaks of cholera, malaria, and typhoid. But the journey that we just undertook is a far cry from the journey that the Shane's have undertaken. They are living in Mozambique. They are living in a police state surrounded by Muslims, surrounded by disease. They're halfway around the world from their family and they're sending church. They have given up the comforts of home and family out of love for Christ and for the Yao people to proclaim Christ's name among them and to plant churches in that region. Do they face fears and challenges? Of course they do. They they deal with many of the same problems and challenges and sins that you and I deal with, but all of it compounded by living so far away from the comforts of home. So who wants to sign up for missions? You know, the Shanes would not trade their life in the mission field for anything that this life has to offer. In fact, many early missionaries made an even greater sacrifice as they packed their belongings in a coffin, knowing that theirs was a one-way journey. 18th century Scottish missionary A.W. Milne packed his belongings in his coffin and set out in a ship from Scotland to the New Hebrides, now Vanuatu, to proclaim the gospel amongst the cannibals. Did Milne face fears? Of course. He knew that he would never return. He knew that most missionaries in that era died within two years of leaving, falling victim to disease or to a headhunter's spear. But Milne ministered among those headhunters for 35 years. And when Milne died, they buried his coffin in the middle of their village. And when he... When he died, they put this epitaph on his gravestone. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. I highly recommend you you read missionary biographies and that you read them to your children. They are a great way to see the work of God, to get and to understand practical application of, of good doctrine love for God and love for people that would cause people to to sacrifice so much to leave because of the kingdom of Christ One of my favorite missionary biographies is that of uh, the the autobiography of John Patton This is an excellent biography I, autobiography I, I hope one day that they that they make it into a movie but but really do a good job as Hollywood rarely does but but I would, would really commend that biography to you. And for parents, there's actually a, a children's version. It's called 30 Years Among South Sea Cannibals. Now, I've been to Vanuatu many years ago now. But, but at the time, this is the, the 19th century, when they were there, they said there were headhunters and, and people were being killed and eaten all over the place. Missionaries were, were going and were dying. But there is now a solid gospel foundation in, in Vanuatu and other surrounding South Seas islands because of the work of these ministries, or more accurate, or more accurately because of the Lord's work in and through them. But John Patton, A. W. Milne, and the Shane's gladly sacrificed the transient comforts of this life so that many more will enjoy eternal blessings in the next. Well, as we look at Genesis 46 and 47, Jacob, or Israel, as he was referred to here at the beginning of this passage, is about to take a journey. And Israel is, a, is an old man. He is a very old man. In fact, at this point, he's 130 years old. And Israel has just discovered that his beloved Joseph, thought dead for, for over 20 years, is alive. And so Israel says at the end of chapter 45, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now death has been very rarely far from Israel's thoughts and Israel's Israel's lips since his sons had deceitfully told him that Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. Israel has conflicting thoughts. On the one hand, he is eager to go and see his son. But he, on the other, he's afraid that this is going to be a one-way journey. Again, he's old. He is very old. And, and travel, even as challenging as it is for, uh, for a much younger man, even in our day, was a different story back then. The, the trip would be taken across sun-parched, drought-stricken land through hostile territory on an animal-drawn wagon. Now, the provisions of, of, of it, for Israel and his family in Egypt would have been appealing, but, but there was a far greater danger that he knew about than, than any physical danger. It was the spiritual danger because the journey out of Canaan would mean leaving the promised land to go into pagan Egypt. Now, surely he would have known of, of his grandfather Abraham's previous two trips and his, his, the encounters and the dangers that he had experienced there. But this would mean entering the country that the Lord had told his father Isaac never to enter during another famine in Genesis 26. So the question in Israel's mind is, is will leaving the promised land put God's promises in jeopardy? Joseph had told his brothers in chapter 45, verses 7 and 10, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive alive for you many survivors. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. And explicitly, Joseph told his brothers in verse 8, It is not you who sent me here, but God. So then the question as we begin this is, is will Israel leave? And will, if he does leave, will God continue to bless him and to protect him and to fulfill his promises to him outside of the promised land? Now, in one sense, Israel knew that God was with him no matter where he went. After all, the, the Lord had promised him in at Bethel back in chapter 28 that, that he would give Israel the land of Canaan for his offspring, offspring to possess. Offspring who would be like the dust of the earth. And remember that Israel spent 20 years in Haran, serving his deceitful father-in-law Laban. And that in that time he experienced many trials but he also experienced the Lord's blessing as he he went away with only his staff, but he came back wealthy and with a huge family, a family that would indeed be the foundation for the nation of Israel. So here in this passage, we, we see God's promise set against his provision during the famine and Joseph's invitation to settle in Egypt. These form the backdrop for this part of the story. So first of all, in verses 1 to 4, we see Israel's dream. And this is where I'm going to focus really the the main part of this message. Israel's dream in verses 1 to 4. Chapter 46 begins with the start of Israel's journey. Now notice again that the the name that is used here at the beginning is Israel. Israel. Not Jacob, as he is often called. And this this use of the name Israel here highlights the implications of this journey, not just for this one individual, but for the whole nation. And Israel gets as far as Beersheba, close to the Egyptian border, and he stops. And at Beersheba, he offers sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac if you remember, as we've tracked through Genesis, Beersheba had been prominent in Israel's life. It was his father Isaac's principal home. Beersheba means well of the oath. This is where Isaac had made the oath with Abimelech. Beersheba was also the place from which Israel departed when he had left for Haran. So the question then is, will this be the place from which Israel will now depart for Egypt? Well, again, from back in chapter 28 on, on Israel's first journey out of the promised land, God had told him in a dream at Bethel that he would be with him. God had promised him his presence. God had promised him the land. God had promised him many offspring. And these were the promises that had been made to Abraham and to Isaac before him. And so now at Beersheba, God speaks to Israel once again this time in a night vision. This is actually the only place in Genesis where God is said to speak specifically in a vision. Elsewhere, it's referred to as a, a dream or a theophany. And God says, Jacob, Jacob. In he response, here I am. Then God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Again, this is a repetition of the Bethel promise. Genesis 28:15, where God says to him, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God had made a similar promise to Isaac at Beersheba as well. We said in Genesis 26, 24, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. This is all God's electing grace on these individuals. God is now saying to Jacob, Do not be afraid. I myself will go with you to Egypt. I will go down with you and I will bring you back. And so God is calling Israel's mind to the past as well as to the future. That God is saying, I am the God of both. God is saying, I am the God of, of your ancestors and I am the God of your offspring. He's saying, I am, I was faithful to earlier generations and I'll be faithful to future generations. So don't be afraid of dangers on the road. Don't be afraid of leaving the promised land. Don't be afraid that I will forsake my promises. Don't be afraid of anything. This is not a one-way journey. I will be with you all the way. But you know the story. Israel will never come back to Canaan alive. He will die in Egypt. So this was, in a sense, a one-way journey, but not in the most important sense. So what's being meant here? Well, theologian Gerhard von Rad says that the the promise to bring Jacob back to Canaan scarcely refers to the return of his corpse, which is reported in in Genesis 54, where where he does indeed die and his sons bring him back and, and bury him in Canaan. But von Rad says that this is rather to the return of his descendants. He explains that, that ancient Israel considered the ancestors of the nation as closely connected with each other. In fact, it, it considered them both as a great living organism with a common destiny. And so he says this is one of the reasons that Israel with relative tranquility could dispense for so long with the hope of personal life after death. They, they weren't so much worried about personal life after death because they understand their, their, their corporate identity. Bruce Waltke says it similarly. The form here is singular, referring both to Jacob, though in a coffin, and his sons in corporate solidarity with him. So he's saying it's, it's, there's a, kind of a, a double sense to this promise. He's, he's saying you are going to return, though not alive, but, but more importantly than that, your descendants are going to return. So in that, God is fulfilling his promises to the individual and to the nation of Israel. Now we know that, that Israel is going to experience suffering, great suffering in Egypt, but that does not mean that God is not with them. We, we know that they're eventually going to be enslaved in Egypt and they're going to be there afflicted for 400 years, just as God had told Abraham in Genesis 15, 13. And here in, in chapter 46, verse 3, we, we find out for the first time that God is going to make a, make Israel into a great nation outside of the nation of Israel. That God is going to to build them into a nation, but not within the confines of the promised land. He's going to do this for them in Egypt. He's going to be there to, to prosper them. He's going to be there with them, even in the midst of their affliction. Christian, your difficult circumstances do not mean that God is not with you. Quite often, it's the opposite. And we saw this extensively in, in, the, in the American Gospel video that, that we aired here, that, that there is a, a false teaching going around that says that, that, that being a Christian, being a, a faithful Christian, means that, that you're going to prosper financially and in your health. But, but this is a lie that, that shows a, a complete disregard for what is clearly taught in God's Word. Your trials, maybe even the trial that you're experiencing right now does not mean that God is not with you. If you're a Christian, God promises that he will use those trials to transform you and to make you more like his son. As I say so often, do not judge the story by the middle. God is really sovereign. And God really does love you in Christ. And God is really wise. And he is is not just able, but he is powerful to to use whatever it is that you are experiencing to sanctify you, to grow you, and to help you more accurately reflect Jesus. So whatever it is that, that you are experiencing, take heart in God's promises to never leave you Or forsake you God tells his people in Isaiah 49 15 and 16 can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb even these may forget yet I will not forget you behold I have engraved you on the palms of my hands God has engraved you on the palms of his hands And here as Christians living 2,700 years after that that prophecy in Isaiah, we understand what that means better than Isaiah did. We understand what it means to be engraved on Christ's hands. Because of Christ, God will never leave you or forsake you. Israel will come back to the promised land. The man Israel in a coffin, but his descendants, the nation of Israel, en masse. This would be the comfort for the the people of Israel who received this from Moses. That they could trust that as God was faithful to their forefather Israel, that he would be faithful to the nation of Israel. Because he was with them. God had promised to be with them. Now, many of you know that, that I'm an Ottawa Senators fan, and some of you have expressed sympathy over that fact. The Senators are not a very well-liked team in the NHL. They aren't like, well-liked now because of the many humiliations that they've suffered over the past year. But they were even well, less well-liked a few years ago when they were one of the top teams in the league. Now I haven't lived in Ottawa for many years so I don't get many opportunities to go to Sens games but, but I have had a couple of opportunities when I lived in other cities. When I lived in Louisville I had the opportunity to go to a Sens game in Nashville. Now Ottawa was, was riding high at the time and, and they were, were very good but, but Nashville wasn't and times have changed. But I had no fear of going to that game wearing an Ottawa Senators jersey amongst Thousands of Nashville Predators fans, and they, they were were—it was just the South, and Southern hospitality was was still in effect. But I had no fear of going to a game dressed in the enemy's colors because of who was with me. Because I didn't go to that game on my own, but I, I had a good friend of mine, Randy, and some of you know Randy. Randy is six foot seven and built like a linebacker, and so I wasn't worried about about watching a game in in in. In enemy territory. Now, of course, God was with me, but I, I probably wasn't thinking in very spiritual term, term, terms at the time. But I had no fear because of who was with me. Same thing when I lived in Toronto. Now, If you know anything about the NHL, you know there's a, a real rivalry between the Ottawa Senators and the Toronto Maple Leafs. And back then, Ottawa was doing really well except in the playoffs and Toronto stunk and again the situations have been reversed Toronto does really well in the regular season and stinks in the playoffs but but I had no fear of going to a an Ottawa Senators game at the Air Canada Centre in Toronto wearing a an Ottawa Senators jersey amongst thousands and thousands of of hostile were, There's no southern hospitality in Toronto they were hostile and as Ottawa began to run up the the score against Toronto and and I was getting more and more vocal as a fan and and there was some dirty looks, some dagger eyes being being shot at me but I had no fear because of who was with me. Because my my housemate Sony and though though not nearly as big as Randy has a black belt. And so I could, could be vocal and loud as a fan again because of who was with me. I felt safe because my friends were with me. But how much safer can you feel knowing that God is with you? And not just at a, at a mere hockey game. But no matter where you go, no matter what you experience, no matter what trials you go through in life, if you're a Christian, God is with you. Psalm 46, one says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. But unbeliever, you have no such promise. God has not promised to be with you. In fact, God is against you. You have made yourself his enemy. God is still present, but he's not present as your friend, as your ally. He is present as an omniscient witness against you observing all you say and all you do and all you think. And unless you turn to Christ in repentance of faith, God will be there as your judge, bringing eternal condemnation upon you for your sins. So as you are here this morning, you're, you're in one of two camps. Either you are here and God is with you in the sense that God is for you, or God is against you in this passage, God has promised to be with Israel. God is for Israel in Christ. God would protect him and fulfill all of his promises towards him. And brothers and sisters, this is also true for you. God will fulfill his promises to you in Christ Jesus. Really, it would encourage you to to lay hold of those promises in Scripture, to mind the depths of Scripture for the promises that God has made to you in Christ, to memorize them and to preach them to yourself regularly. God is for you in Christ. But there's a further promise that God makes to Israel. Look at the end of verse 4. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. I'm sure many of the older folks here have considered that moment. The moment when you will leave this life. You've considered what it would be like and, and you've considered who would be there with you at your deathbed. Maybe it's not just the older folks. Maybe all of us need to be thinking about this. About that moment when we will leave this life for eternity. And even for those who are confident that because of the gospel, they're going to eternal life with Christ. That, that moment is, is weighty, isn't it? You'll be wondering who's going to be with you and, and who is going to be there to comfort you? And who's going to be there to close your eyes? What a sweet comfort that would have been to aged Israel. Joseph would close his eyes in death. Israel not, had not seen his favorite son in 22 years. He'd only just discovered that he's still alive. And and now Israel is traveling to see Joseph with his own eyes. And he's told, promised by God, that Joseph will be there with him, present with him, comforting him. And that one of the last people he will see is his own beloved son. And so comforted by the Lord, Israel sets out from Beersheba. And although the, Lord is, although the Lord is not mentioned again in these two chapters, his head is clear throughout this chapter. So, so quickly, let's move through this. In Israel's journey, verses 25, rather verse 5 to verses 27. First in verses 5 to 7, Moses goes into great detail describing who and what Israel takes with him. The brothers, were told, packed up everything and everyone and placed it on the wagons that Pharaoh had sent. And it all went... Their livestock and goods and all of Israel's offspring all the way to Egypt. And, and what, what Moses here is, is reinforcing, and we'll see this even in more detail with the genealogy, is that God has been faithful already to fulfill. There's already a, a nation beginning to form here. And, and that, that every one of them, every single one of them is going to be protected by God and to enjoy the presence of God as they go from the promised land into Egypt. Here in verses 8 to 27, we see this detailed genealogy arranged according to Israel's wives, Leah and Rachel. First, the children of Leah and her servant Zilpah, and then Rachel and her servant Bilhah. Now, this is a segmented genealogy as opposed to a linear one. There is there um, more than one descendant listed at every generation. We're told that each handmaiden bore half the number of children as their mistress First Leah had 33 and then Zilpah 16, Rachel 14, and Bilhah 7. And the total here is presented as 70. But there's there's a lot of ink spilled in trying to figure out how this tally comes up to 70. If you try to to look at it yourself, it's it's really hard to work it up precisely. So where do Aaron and Onan fit in? And what about Dinah? But I think we need to think about the big picture of, of the, the meaning of this number 70. In part, that it's, it's the perfect number, the factor of, of two perfect numbers, 7 and 10. The number 70 rec- occurs repeatedly in the scriptures. There's are, there are 70 elders appointed by Moses, Numbers 11:16. 16. Israel's 70 years in captivity, Jeremiah 29, 10. But there's an even more important 70 in relation to this passage. The 70 nations that make up the table of nations in Genesis 10 that represent the the 70 nations of the earth. And and so with with this this 70 individuals, what's being implied here that God is making for himself a new nation through his elect. Now Israel has experienced the the preserving and providing presence of the Lord in his earlier sojourn in Haran. The Lord has indeed been with him and has delivered him safely home to Canaan. And Israel continued to experience the preserving and providing presence of the Lord in the promised land, in in Canaan. So the Lord can indeed be trusted no matter where Israel goes. God is fulfilling his promises to him. This genealogy g- demonstrates that, that God is fulfilling his promise, that he, the promise that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and then to Jacob, this promise of many offspring. And so again, we're already seeing this. When they, when they, when they leave the promised land to go to Egypt, there's already quite a, a large number. And so these people can, can understand that they are the promised offspring and that Israel who received this would know that they are the promised offspring as being the offspring of Israel. Deuteronomy six five says, And you shall make this response before the Lord your God, a wandering Aramean was my father. That's Abraham. And he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and they became a great nation, great, mighty, and populous. So through Abraham, through Isaac, through Israel, Jacob, they became a great nation. And so then the future descendants of these patriarchs can take comfort in the fact that God has indeed been faithful to his promises to their forefather, Israel, and he will be faithful to them, the nation of Israel. So the Lord can be trusted to fulfill the promises that he has made towards you. No, God has not promised you physical offspring, but he has promised you infinitely more. God has promised you eternal life with His Son. And God has promised His presence until you go to be with Him forever. This this is the foundational. And if if you're going to to understand how to walk through the the trials and the difficulty of this life, you need to remember this. You need to preach this to yourself all the time. (coughs) That this isn't your home. Like Abraham, like Isaac, like Israel, we are sojourners. Heaven is our home. This earth is not our home. In verses 28 to 34, we also see the Lord's presence with Israel. And with this, we see Israel's reunion. Now Israel sends Joseph, sorry, now Israel sends Jacob ahead of him. Rather, sorry, Judah ahead of him. Now Judah is, is, we're seeing here that Judah has been, is given the primary position in the family. Remember that this has been forsaken by Reuben, that it is, it is through Judah that the line will come. This promised seed will come through Judah. So Judah is here having the, the primary position and the lead role. He's been given the role of being the, the liaison in the coming reunion between the father and his long-lost son. But isn't it ironic that Judah is given this responsibility, given the fact that he was the one who was primarily responsible for their separation in the first place, as it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. The family arrives in Egypt, in Goshen, and Joseph has traveled on his chariot to meet his father there. This is a touching moment as, as Joseph falls on his father's neck and and weeps for a long time, overcome with, with what must have been a mix of emotions. Grief over lost years apart and joy over future years together. But Israel says to Joseph in verse 30, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and I know that you are still alive. Again, we see Israel, who's been fixated on death since he'd heard that that Joseph was dead, and he's, he's still fixated on death when he knows that Joseph is alive. But the bitterness that he's once expressed is now replaced with hope. saying he can die in peace because he has seen God's faithfulness and God's pre- presence. He's proven Israel to Israel that he is indeed with him. And, and this is indeed an emotional meeting, but, but this meeting is not the climax of the story. This is a small moment in the broader picture of Israel's descent to Egypt. We're now in verses 31 to 34. Joseph explains his plan so that Israel will receive the best part of the land of Egypt. He he tells them to explain that they are shepherds. They've been shepherds their whole lives. And and as foreign shepherds, they would be segregated as Joseph had planned because we see that, that shepherds were considered to be an abomination to those in Egypt. So so Joseph's plan is they're going to be segregated in Goshen. In Joseph's travels throughout the country, he knew full well what the best part of the land was. Goshen was on the Nile Delta near the the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. It's the most fertile part of the land of Egypt with the country that is best for grazing. And so now we see in verses 1 to 12 of, of chapter 47, Israel's audience So here in chapter 47, Joseph goes to Pharaoh and and tells him about the arrival of his family from Canaan with their flocks and their herds and all of their possessions. And he explains that they're currently in Goshen. And this is exactly what Joseph wants. In, In verses 1 to 6, Joseph takes five of his brothers and presents them to Pharaoh. When Pharaoh asks them their occupation, just as Joseph had predicted, they responded as Joseph had instructed, that they are shepherds, that they have been shepherds for a long time. But they go a step further here and boldly asking that they would be able to dwell in the land of Goshen. But then Pharaoh goes a step further than the request. He he tells them in verse 6, the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in, in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. And so Pharaoh is here offering the, the brothers of, of Joseph positions as royal shepherds in entrusting the care of his own flocks to them. Now Joseph has once again displayed his, his wisdom in predicting what Pharaoh would do and and working out the best possible outcome for his family. But far more importantly, once again, the Lord is displaying his presence. Sidney Gordana says that, that as the Lord has been present with Joseph in Potiphar's house in prison and in Pharaoh's court, so clearly the Lord is now with Jacob and his family in Egypt. The Lord is proving his presence with Israel then in verses 7 to 12, Joseph now presents his father to Pharaoh. But notice that instead of bowing, instead of bowing to Pharaoh, Israel blesses Pharaoh. It's repeated again in verse 10 that Israel blesses Pharaoh. Like we read in Hebrews 7.7, 7, the inferior is blessed by the superior. Israel is Pharaoh's superior. The Lord is blessing those who bless his people according to the Lord's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. That I will bless those who bless you. And when Pharaoh asks Israel his age, Israel responds, the days of my years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of my life. And They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Israel is fully 130. And he's going to live another 17 years under the patronage of Joseph. His life has been hard. Much of it self-inflicted. And again, he recognizes that his life is a pilgrimage, that he is a sojourner wherever he is, whether it be in the land of Egypt or Haran or Canaan, that the earth is not his home, that he, like his grandfather Abraham, was looking for a, looking toward a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11.10. And again, this is true for us that we also are are looking ahead to to another city, the city of God, a a heavenly city. Nothing that this life has to offer. And so now Pharaoh blesses Israel even further. He he doesn't just allow them to live in the land of Goshen. He actually gives them the land of Goshen. Again, the Lord is demonstrating his presence with Israel. Pharaoh gives them the best of the land, the land identified here as the land of Ramses. And ironically, this land would later be associated with the land of Israel's slavery. But as of right now, Israel is free. But it is Egypt that is about to be enslaved. So in verses 13 to 27, we see Israel's foil. Israel's foil. After describing Israel's settlement in the land of Goshen, the narrative now circles back to the famine that is in the land of Egypt and Canaan. And we're, we're told again that the famine is very severe, that there is no food in Egypt or, or Canaan. And Joseph has gathered up all of the money in Egypt and Canaan to, as people come to purchase food, and, and Joseph gives it all to Pharaoh. And the people in Egypt have, have become, now become so desperate that they sell their livestock to Joseph for Pharaoh and when their livestock is gone, they sell their land and they sell themselves. And so by the wisdom and actions of Joseph, though ultimately through the providence of the Lord, the lives of both Hebrew and Egyptian are spared. But the Egyptians will become serfs, tenant farmers, feudal slaves to Pharaoh. Now, this might sound harsh to, to 21st century Western ears, but this was common practice in the ancient Near East. When the food and money ran out, people paid for their food with their freedom. And we see that, that Joseph begins to, to install a tax, a, a one-fifth tax, leaving, leaving 20% for, to be given to Pharaoh, and then the people could live on the 80%. This is actually generous when, when compared to other situations that, that you can read about from that time. Quite often, farmers, tenant farmers were required to pay half. But here it, it's only 20%. And the Egyptians were told are thankful. They're actually thankful to Joseph for sparing their lives. And so God has indeed sent Joseph ahead to preserve life and not only the lives of his family. So that there is a future for Egypt, but there's prosperity for Israel. The the circumstances here of the Egyptians are presented as a foil to be compared with those of the Hebrews. In verse 27, we read that thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So Israel gained possessions, but the Egyptians lost everything. Pharaoh gives land to Israel, but takes it from the Egyptians. Pharaoh gives Israel a position, but makes the Egyptians slaves. So God here is showing his presence with his covenant people. And, and we see that, that that the Egyptians and the way that, that they are, that they suffer, even though their lives are spared, is to be compared and contrasted with the blessing that is upon Israel. But there's here a further element of Egypt as a foil for Israel. You can see this in the treatment of the Egyptian priests. They too are protected by Pharaoh. They too are exempt from forfeiting their lands and they're exempt from slavery. They're free to continue their pagan religion. So clearly Pharaoh and the Egyptians have not turned to the God of Israel. Isn't it ironic that the the false gods of Egypt were not able to deliver the Egyptians from the the famine? They were powerless to save them. The the, the God of the land had not saved the Egyptians, but the God of Israel had. Nonetheless, the people continued to worship their false gods, yet God in His mercy still provided for them. What a picture and a, a sad indictment of so much of religion in our day. And finally, in verses 28 to 31, we see Israel's twilight. Israel lived another 17 years to the ripe old age of 147. And as his death approached, he called Joseph and made him place his hand under his thigh and promise not to bury him in Egypt, but to bring his body back to Canaan, back to the Machpelah cave where Abraham and Isaac were buried. And Joseph swears the promise to him and, and Israel bows himself upon his bed. Now this request not to be buried in Egypt but in the promised land is really the perfect conclusion to a narrative that focuses on Israel moving his family down to Egypt. Remember in the beginning of chapter 46 he's, he's afraid to go down. Now he's afraid, afraid of remaining. And once again, this is not just about his earthly remains, but their significance to future generations, to his descendants, and what all of that represents. It predicts the destiny of Israel, not in Egypt, but in Canaan. A a promise that would be of great comfort to the Israelites who would receive this text. The fact that, that, that they would be, that God would be with them and that, that God would deliver them from their bondage to Egypt as he had in the Exodus and that he would deliver them into the land of Canaan in the conquest which would have been which which was just just beginning to, to advance just as they received this from Moses and Joseph would indeed close Israel's eyes Israel's and bring him back not primarily not primarily because Joseph has promised but because the Lord has promised so the Lord was, with, truly, was truly with the man Israel all the way. The Lord would truly be with the nation Israel all the way. So God has promised Israel that he would be with him in his descent to Egypt and he has promised to bring him back to the promised land. And this is a, a pattern that we see repeatedly in the scriptures, that of going down to Egypt and coming back again because of the presence of God. Abraham has, has done it twice. The man, Israel, goes down and will come back again assured of God's presence. Joseph goes down and will come back again also assured of God's presence. The nation of Israel goes down to Egypt and will come back again because of God's presence. Theologian G.K. Beal highlights the the significance of this typologically in the light of of Hosea's prophecy in Hosea 11.1. We looked at this with the men in our hermeneutics class. Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I have called my son. And so Beale says that this pattern of of entering and then returning from Egypt is a recapitulation of Israel's original entering into Egypt and their exodus. And many of us are familiar with that reference, with that verse, because we read it in Matthew 2, 5, where Matthew speaks of Jesus, out of Egypt, I have called my son, describing the descent of Jesus into Egypt, as his father takes him there to protect him from the wrath of Herod, and then his eventual return to Israel. So, so here we, we see this pattern. This is a, a typological um, increasing of the picture of what God is doing in his people. It's not just the man Israel and the nation Israel who descended into Egypt and returned to the promised land. Jesus Christ descended into Egypt and returned to the promised land. In fact, he did this in an even more profound way as he entered the Egypt of the world and returned to to the promised land of eternal glory. Child of God, you are walking through the Egypt of the world. But God will take you into the promised land. God will take you home. And God has promised to be be with you all the way, wherever His providence leads you in His life. He is there with you, guiding you, protecting you, providing for you, promising you that He will take you home. God promises Moses in Exodus 3.12, I will be with you. Moses passes the promise on to the people in Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. God promises Joshua in Joshua 1.5, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. God promises the people of Israel in Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you with my righteous right hand. And God promises the people in Isaiah 7.14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. God promises us in Matthew 23: Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Brothers and sisters, God is with us in Jesus Christ. Christ and God promises us in Matthew 28 20 I am with you and always I'm with you always and I'll be with you to the end of the age God promises his presence to the church militant through the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 and 1st Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 and God gives the same promise to the church triumphant in Genesis 21 3 God himself will be with them as their God God is with you in Christ. When the disciples were in the boat, on the Sea of Galilee, and the, the, the tempestuous storm whipped up and, and so much so that these, these seasoned fishermen were fearful for their lives. Jesus was there, with them in the boat and rebuked the wind. And the waves and the sea was calm. So they wondered, what manner of man is this? That even the wind and the waves respond to his voice. Brothers and sisters, no matter where you go in this life, no matter what you face, God is with you in the boat. Jesus Christ has promised to be with you and he will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray together. Omnipresent God, we know that you are everywhere and at all times present. Yet, Lord, for those of us who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who have been washed clean from their sins. Lord, we know that you are present with us in a very special way. Lord, that you have promised to be with us, that you are in us through your Holy Spirit, and that you will take us home to be with you forever. Lord, we pray that you would help us all to see this and to believe this and to preach this to ourselves. We pray for those who are here this morning as unbelievers. That you would work in them by the Holy Spirit. That you would give them regeneration. That you would grant them repentance to acknowledging the truth. And that they would know the presence of Jesus with them as well. We pray this all in his matchless name. Amen.